Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Good morning. It's good to be with you. This morning, I want to ask you a question. One of the things that binds us all together, one of the things that's just general amongst all human experience is that every single one of us, no matter our age, our status in life, married, single, no matter our socioeconomic situation, one of the things that binds us together in the human experience is the fact that because of sin, what the Bible teaches about sin, we have regrets things in life that we look back on and wish had been different. It's called a regret. What's something in life that you regret? I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we've got a long passage to read through and a lot to talk about, but as I think back on my own life, there are different categories of regrets. Some of them are sad things that happen that I regret. Some of them are embarrassing things that I regret. And if you spend much time around me, maybe you've heard the story about the water slide incident at Camp Machindo. That's a story I regret. But more than the sad things and the embarrassing things, uh, we've committed sins, things that have displeased God and hurt those that we most deeply love. And those are often our biggest regrets. And while it's inevitable that each one of us has things in our past that we regret, it is imperative that we not confuse regret with repentance or attribute to regret what belongs to repentance. It's not, and we also should keep in mind that we are never to live in regret. So this morning I want to speak to all of us about the nature of regret and repentance from Judges chapter 6. And as I mentioned, it's a, it's a little bit of a longer chapter. Please bear with me and, and stand as we read Judges chapter 6 together. Judges chapter 6, 1 through 32. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go up against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and and their tents and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels, camels were innumerable. They came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live But you have not obeyed me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, the son of as his son Gideon rather was beating out the wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, "The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior." Then Gideon said to him, "O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us?" And why are all his miracles which our fathers told us and where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about saying did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt but now the Lord has abandoned us and has given us into the hands of Midian the Lord looked at him and said go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian have I not sent you he said to him O Lord how shall I deliver Israel behold my family is the least in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my father's house But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, 
If I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went, and he went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. And he put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel, said, the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it the Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still an Ophrah of the Abizarites. Now, on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that's beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold in an orderly manner, and take the second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah which you cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all those who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will, plead, whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he named him Jerubbabal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he had torn down his altar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be honored in our lives and that you would give us hearts that are soft to hear your word. May your word soak into our hearts and change us, Lord. May we never look into the perfect law and not come away uh, changed. Pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think I've shared once before my distaste and dislike for the Swiss family Robinson. Have I said that before? A couple of years ago, we drove out to Washington, and my boys and daughter at the time liked listening to books on tape, and so we listened to a number of different things. But somewhere on the way back, things took a big downturn, and we started listening to the Swiss family Robinson. And I don't understand how that book won that little, what's the gold stamp that they put on books that went? Newberry Prize, yeah, I don't understand. It's a very frustrating book to listen to because it is the same thing over and over and over and over for like, it was like six or eight hours. And you would just zone in and, you know, one day they'd be living on this island and miraculously know everything about every bit of biology and the natural world. You know, this plant can heal. They'd come into some conflict. The plot is the same. It's, they're living on this, strung out on this island, and something bad happens. And then what are they going to do? Oh, no, they don't have what they need. Oh, no, miraculously, the father remembers from his reading somewhere in the past about this tree, and if you combine this tree with a mango fruit, and you do this, and you rub it, and this, and this, and this, and this, you overcome the problem. Something along that nature. And so just you zone in and out of the book as your kids are listening to it in the back seats of the van, and it's, the plot is always the same. Just such a frustrating book. So if you haven't listened to it, you're not missing anything. I'll save you six hours of your life. Uh, at this point, we read in our, in our chapter, in verse 1, 
And there's this sad predictability once again, just kind of like reminded me of the Swiss Family Robinson. Six chapters in, it's the same, same thing. We're told again by the author that Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord God. That's verse 1. If you skip down nine verses to verse, chap- verse 10, we read God's own judgment on the people. He says by the mouth of that prophet at the end of that sermon, you have not obeyed me. That's the end of the sermon. Verse 10. We continue to read down through the chapter, as we just did. We get more of a picture of the specific evil that the people of Israel were caught up in. If you go down to verse 25, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, Take your father's bowl and a second bowl and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father. Cut down the Asherah that's beside it. So now we have been told that they did what was evil. We've been told that they have not obeyed the word of the Lord. And now we have um, a more of a specific view of what that obedience, uh, disobedience rather, that sin manifested as, what it looked like. They were worshiping Baal and they were using the Asherah. So the people have, in the course of a couple generations, we're talking, we just talked about Deborah a couple weeks ago, that's uh, probably about 40 years have elapsed. And in the, in, in, the, in the course of 40 years, the nation of Israel has slidden back, they've slid back into polytheistic pagan worship, the pagan worship they were originally commissioned to eradicate, to destroy, to root out, to cleanse the land. Remember, that's one of the reasons they were told by God back in Deuteronomy to go in. God was giving them the land because he loved them, but he was also giving them the land because the land was evil. And the armies of Israel were the hand of God's justice coming to to inflict death on the people of the land for those very sins that now we see in Judges chapter 6, verse 25, Israel having yoked themselves to. But what was Baal worship? What were the practices surrounding the Asherah? We, if you grow up in the church, the word Baal is a word that you probably have heard your entire life. I remember flanograph boards teaching about Baal. But what was it? Well, if you were in the class uh, in our Sunday school hour, and I hope you were, my dad spoke a little bit about idolatry, um, and I just wanted to share just a few details about what Baal worship actually is and and was and and it is still today, uh, though it's not called that. Baal was the god of storm and fertility, and for the Canaanites, fertility was the name of the game. Fertility of crops, livestock, family, that's what you live for. Baal was a a nature god, and by nature, being a god at that time, a deity, he had a female cohort, and that cohort, I'm sorry, consort. I said cohort last yesterday to my wife, and she said, it's not cohort, it's consort. I use words I don't know the definition of. so his concert, his, his, his woman was this Asherah. And in Canaanite theology and in agriculture, the fertility of the land depended upon the sexual relationship between Baal and his Asherah. And the revival of nature was due to their belief in the sexual intercourse of Baal and this lady. But it wasn't enough for them to just believe, and see, this is the tie. Their pagan worship is always tied to sexual perversion. They didn't just believe that Baal did his thing up in the sky, actually. They believed that Baal did as he would do, and he wanted them to do as he would do. And so they would go to the temple, and there were prostitutes at the temple, and that was the way they worshiped. So when it talks about the Baal and the Asherah, when it talks about Israel engaging in this sort of thing, that's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. It's not just bowing down to a totem pole uh, with your offering on your way to the marketplace or on your way home. Or This is the story. It was sexual immorality, and it was something that they enjoyed. It played to what they actually wanted. We talked a little bit about that in our class earlier this morning. I wanted to share these details because I think we're always tempted every time we talk about idols and images, we're always tempted to elevate ourselves and to act like our sins aren't as bad or at least as ignorant as what they were in the past and dumb. And yet I'm always struck that the world really hasn't changed. 
Here we're talking about the time of the judges before even the kings of Israel were around. And what is it? We have sexual carnal lusts. That's what we're talking about in the people of Israel. Sexual carnal lusts that lured the people into idolatry. And it's no different than what we're tempted by today. The sinful gravitational pull that we feel towards sin, whether it's sexual or otherwise in nature, has not changed in all that time, in all this time, because the human heart hasn't changed. Your heart hasn't changed. Gideon's family's hearts were the same as yours. Men's hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. That is the nature of our hearts Certainly before Christ and then after Christ, he does change our hearts, but it is a process. And Paul says it's a battle. It's a war. The old nature against the new. It might be easy to assume that in their minds, the people of Israel going and worshiping Baal and doing all that horrible stuff had turned their backs totally on God. And actually, we know that they had. God says it from his own mouth. They have not obeyed. But what's interesting in this chapter and something we need to pay attention to is that we come away with the distinct impression, if we read carefully, that for all the Baal worship, for all the Asherah worship and, and action and sexual immorality that's going on, the Israelites, and listen here, the Israelites still remembered God's deliverance, all the deliverances of the past. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, and he said to them, him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And then Gideon says, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has this happened? And where are all his miracles which our fathers have told us about? These people aren't ignorant of God. They're not ignorant of the work that God had done, nor the miracles that God had worked in in their nation before. Gideon, whose father owned the town's Baal, was taught by that very same father about God. It's a striking thing. Gideon also says, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? He's very aware of the story. Their fathers have told them the things of God. Israel was also very aware of God's law and commandments. Think about it. After realizing that Gideon had seen the Lord face to face, what does he say? He says, alas, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Why does he say that? It's because he is aware of what God had said in Exodus chapter 33 when he said, no one will look at me and live. That's the reason why Gideon was terrified when he realized that he was face-to-face with the Lord after he saw that fire come, bam, and consume the offering. He knew what Exodus chapter 33 said, and he was afraid. They also know enough about God to call out for deliverance. They do that in verse 7. And so we now see that though God's judgment is that they had turned their backs on him. If we were living life from their perspective, thinking from their perspective, they hadn't sworn off God completely. They hadn't turned their backs on him and walked out of the, out of the church. They were still aware of him. They still liked to think that he would answer them if they, if they called on him for a lifeline in their time of need. They've just incorporated other gods next to Jehovah. They haven't left him in the dust. They've just also become maybe a little more sophisticated, a little bit more open-minded about the way life actually is. And they've allowed things to come alongside God. In other words, they had mixed God with their own pleasures. They had forgotten the essence of the Shema, that, that great line from the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. There is only one God. But their allegiance was divided. Part of their hearts knew that they should give nothing toward, uh, uh, they should give rather a nod towards God. But they had 
been so wrapped up in the cultural idolatry of the day that they thought they could do both things at once and he would be okay with it. Jesus is clear. We can't subdivide our hearts. He wants everything and nothing less if he is to save us wholly, completely, totally. If he is to save you completely, he must own you completely. This is the point Jesus is making that when he says that we are to seek after him and and to do so, we must even hate our father and mother. The point isn't to hate our father and mother. The point is that we can't have divided allegiances. If Christ is to be your savior, if he is to lay claim to you, then he is going to lay claim to all of you. He must have your heart, my heart, their heart, and nothing less. He won't take half your heart. He won't take 90% of your heart. You must die to yourself and that he might raise you complete and whole. Israel didn't believe God when God said, I'm a jealous God. God's not going to share his glory with another. He won't sublease room in in our hearts along next to other gods. And so, because of Israel's harlotry, because this is what they were doing, God had handed them over to the Midianites. And so, as they were once going to be the hand of justice on the Canaanites, now God is using the wicked Midianites to bring justice to his his people. Also notice our ratcheting up of the pain inflicted by Israel. I know it was a long chapter and we read through it quickly, but I wanted to highlight some of the ways that the rope is getting tighter. Whereas the Moabites in chapter 3 were content with political power and some tribute, you remember, well, we didn't talk about him, but one of the judges was taking tribute to Eglon, that, the, the fat man uh, in the book of Judges. And while King Jabin, who was fought by Deborah and Barak, Uh, oppressed the Israelites on the highways and the byways on their way to the marketplaces, the Midianites have taken things to a new level. And I'm, I'm pointing this out because this is the way our sins work. It gets deeper and deeper, harder and harder. This is God's teaching us right here. The Midianites would camp against Israel and destroy their produce as far as Gaza, and they would leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep, no oxen, no donkeys. They would come up with all their livestock. They'd come in like locusts in number. Both them and their camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to devastate it. To devastate. They aren't wanting a tribute. They aren't just wanting political power. They are bringing and wreaking devastation on God's people. And God, in this chapter, is warning you and he's warning me that sin is devastating. And if you don't believe it, God is trying to teach us that with this passage and with this book as it goes on. It is devastating. It ruins. It destroys. These these Midianites are bandits of ruthless raiders whose presence is so heavy and so destructive that no one is safe from their tyranny. uh, King Jabin would try and take people on the road and in the marketplace. These guys are coming into their homes. The oppression is so extreme that Gideon, who God calls a valiant warrior, is found by the Lord beating out wheat in a wine press. And if you don't know anything about threshing wheat, farmers would do it in the open air so that the breeze would help them separate the wheat from the chaff from the grain. When the angel appears to Gideon in verse 11, he's crouching down likely in a hole in the ground, trying to get his work done for fear that the Midianites would come and take his wheat. That's what the Bible very clearly says. This is the condition of Israel. But just as importantly, this is the type of results delivered when, when people approach God on their own terms, when they aren't willing to have God as he gives himself to us, but would rather have a little bit of God a little bit of sexual pleasure, a little bit of worldly success, a little bit of identity outside of him, a little bit of our own vengeance, a little bit of our own self-worship, our own pride. This is where that kind of life, it's not repented of, leads. And as I said this morning, we're going to talk about the difference between regret and repentance. Verse 6, if you have your Bibles, look there. Verse 6 says, so Israel was brought very low, very low, to the point of threshing out wheat in a hole in the ground. 
Because of Midian, the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Sounds like a good thing. How are we to read this, though? Are we to interpret this verse as indicating Israel's heartfelt repentance? Is this a, is this a breath of fresh air in the narrative as we read it? Has there been a turning of the tide? Is, what's going on here? It's clear that they're crying out to the Lord, but what's their motivation? Are they grieved by their sin? Are they sorry that they have forsaken the Lord? Are they dis- or are they only despairing because of the oppression that's come to them? What's going on? Well, again, if you pay close attention to the text, these are questions that are answered. God does something very different in chapter 6 than he's done in 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. There's something different here. Maybe you missed it as we read through it. I certainly missed it the first time I read through it. Glazed right over it. Every other time that Israel has cried out, God has sent them a judge to deliver them. And he will send them a judge because he is merciful. It's amazing this time. But this time when they call for help, God does not send them a judge. They call out to him for salvation, for a lifeline, and he responds by sending them first a prophet who delivers a sermon. You notice that? After that prophet's done, it says, then God appeared to Gideon, but we don't know how much time elapsed between the prophet and the judge. When they call out to God asking for help, they want salvation. He says, all right, what you need is to hear this message from my mouth. Hear this sermon. Now it came about, they cry out to the Lord, he sent a prophet. I want to I read just what the prophet says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians in the hands of all your oppressors, and I dispossessed them before you, and I gave you their land. This is God saying what he's done. And I said to you, his one condition, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. And then his, his indictment on them, you have not obeyed me. The nature of the sermon shows that God is speaking to convict the people so that they will be truly repentant. And this suggests to us that their crying out in verse six is, verses 6 and 7 is not a sign of true repentance. If they were genuinely sorry, their hearts would have been contrite already. And God's final statement of you have not obeyed seems maybe a little bit out of place. But if, if, if that's not enough for you, it also doesn't add up. True repentance doesn't add up with Gideon's first statement saying, if you were with us, why? If you were here, Why? Why didn't you raise up another deliverer like you did for Egypt? Why, why, why? That's not repentance. And if you still are struggling and want to believe the best about Israel, think about what I read at the end of the chapter when Gideon obeys God and cuts down, takes his chainsaw to Baal and the Asherah pole, and the people of the city want to string him up for it. They say, we're going to kill this guy because he's killed our God. Does that sound to you like repentance? No, it's not repentance. Given the pattern of this fair-weather love that they've had for the Lord, what we see them expressing when they call out to him isn't so much true repentance as it is regret, regret, regret. The difference between regret and repentance is something that we must have a good understanding of as Christians. There is a proper place in life for regret, but regret is not repentance. Repentance is much more than regret. Regret plays a part in the process of repentance. But if you think that just because you regret something that you are repentant, you are wildly mistaken. And you're also in for a lot of heartache. And more importantly, you don't have a right understanding of your relationship with Christ. Some of you are like Israel. Your life feels like the Midianites have come in and raided your joy, your peace, your hope. You're living with regrets that are eating away at you. You're feeling the pains of your sin. You're experiencing deterioration of relationships. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. It's sucking the joy out of your life. The Israelites felt that way. Some of us feel that way. You regret where you are at in life, in a relationship, in your parenting, in your marriage. And so you're willing to reach out for help. 
And while reaching out for help isn't bad, if you're focused on regret and you don't reach repentance, you are not going to find peace and joy. And like Israel, you're going to seek after a salvation that is much less than what you need. The Israelites were calling out for salvation, but what they, what they were asking for was a change of the circumstances. It was not a change for their heart. They were asking for a change way down here at the ground level where God was calling them to a change that only he could provide. So what is the difference between regret and repentance? The Bible is clear. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Both are characterized by deep sorrow and distress, but they're completely different. First, worldly sorrow or regret doesn't produce any real change, and repentance does. This is because regret is sorrow over the consequences, the outcome of sin, and not over sin itself. You only are sorry about the way your marriage is now changed because of your actions. Lying to your spouse now makes them distrust you, and it's that lack of trust that you regret. It's not the sin. It's, it's disease from being sexually active, and you regret that sort of thing, but you don't regret your actions that led to it. It's losing privileges because you're not responsible, and you, and you don't say, I, I regret my lack of responsibility. You say, I lost my privileges. If you only regret the consequences, the outcome of your actions, then your sorrow is actually totally self-centered, and it's wrong. Mere regret is all about you. And I say mere regret. Regret is a part of repentance, but staying and living in regret is absolutely all about you. How you are being hurt, how you are being grieved. Remove the consequences and the regret is gone. You're actually not sorry for what you did. You're only, did. You're only sorry that what you did has caused a situation or consequences that you don't like. And therefore, as soon as the consequences go away, the behavior comes back. Does that sound like Israel? The heart has not been disgusted with sin itself. So sinful roots remain. And it just starts growing back. We've been cutting down some poison ivy at the house. And one of the things I'm trying to figure out how you kill this stuff, because you can leave just a little bit of it and chop down everything above it and it, give it a week and it'll just grow right back up. That's like sin. If you don't go after the sin, it's just going to lead to the same stuff. This is where Israel is when they cried to the Lord to send deliverance. They were sorry that they were being oppressed. They regretted that they had, they, were, they regretted what they had lost. They wanted it restored. They wanted to be able to beat their wheat out in the field, not in the wine press. But they weren't repentant of their idolatry. They weren't repentant of the sin that had led to those consequences. Is this you? Are you regretful or are you repentant? Do you hate your sin or do you hate the place that your sin has brought you to in life? Do you hate the pains and the inconveniences of sin? If regret is all about us, and when, it is, when we live in regret, it is all about us. If regret is about us, then repentance is about God. Repentance is not regret over pains that we may suffer, but it is the realization that our sins are an offense against a holy and a righteous judge. It is the realization of the sins that our Savior Jesus Christ took upon himself and died for. Against him who has sworn that he will deal with all our sins with justice and righteousness. While our chapter opens with an example of God's people living in regret, and that's what they were doing, and that's why I've spent some time on it. While it starts that way, the chapter goes on to illustrate a wonderful picture, I think, of what godly, biblical, true repentance looks like. And it's illustrated in the story of God commanding Gideon to go and destroy the altar of Baal. So I want to just walk down through that story a little bit with you in the remainder of our time. In the first interaction of the angel of the Lord with Gideon, 
It ends in verse 22, and you can look at it if you have your Bible. There's this pivotal realization. When Gideon saw that he, God, was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. We already talked about that. Gideon had came face to face with the Lord, and in seeing the Lord, as anyone who sees God with a soft heart will, he also sees himself. He sees the Lord, but he sees himself, and he sees himself as the sinful man that he is in the presence of a holy God. He's brought very low by it. He says, alas, he despairs, because maybe even for the first time, he sees things clearly as they really are. He sees the holiness of God in contrast with the sinful man that stands before that holy God. And this is the beginning of repentance for Gideon, and he stands to us sort of as a picture of Israel. And it's the same for every one of us. If you think that you can bypass the pain and the shame of coming face to face with the reality of your sinfulness in the light of God's perfect holiness, then you are seeking to bypass something that cannot be bypassed. If your testimony of Jesus' work in your life doesn't begin here with a realization of your sinfulness and your need and your, alas, who am I that God would appear to me? Who am I and who is he that he should spare me? Then you're seeking to build your faith on a foundation that isn't on the God of the Bible. This is, this is God and this is us. We have no hope save the mercy of God. When we see God as he is, we see the mess that we are. That is Gideon. And that's his response to God after that first appearance in this chapter. After the Lord's first appearance, we're told in verse 25, you can scan down there, that on the same night, now the Lord is gone from him, he appeared Gideon asked for a sign, made that meal. It was licked up by the fire. Then the Lord departed from him. On that same night, he comes back. He comes back and he says, take your father's bull in a second and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that's beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. And take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah which you shall cut down. This is the picture of repentance that I want to talk about with you. Wonderful picture of what repentance looks like right here. Notice that it is not enough to just fear God and to say alas and stay laying on the ground. Gideon feared God, but his realization of who the Lord is did not stay in his mind, in his heart, without affecting his actions. And God wasn't willing to have it stay that way either. Remember, God came back and said, okay, you've seen yourself for who you are. You've seen me. Now, here's what you're going to do. And it, was, it, was, it wasn't some contemplative thing that he could accomplish in his mind. God gave him something to do. True repentance isn't just feeling bad. That's regret. It's not even feeling bad and knowing that you kind of let God down and feeling bad about that or even feeling a little bit afraid of him and just staying there. Repentance is turning. It's a change in action. Repentance begins in the heart, but it is revealed as Gideon's obedience was and his faith in life, in actions, in speech. You can see it. You can hear it. So the Lord said, take your father's bowl in a second and offer it on the wood that you've cut down, the wood of the Asherah pole. This is repentance. It's not just regret over the circumstances. It's having a clear view of the sins that have brought you to this terrible place and a clear view of God's holiness and then responding by toppling the sins and the idolatries that have a hold and a grasp on your heart. Don't think that the fact that the idols were Gideon's own fathers, don't think that the fact that they belonged to Gideon's father was insignificant. God is, doing, God is going after something, and it is clear that God is going after something that's very near and dear to Gideon. And it isn't something that's going to be done clean or tidy 
or in a clinical manner. This is a, what God's telling Gideon to do here is a big family affair, and it is messy. He's going to bring the whole house down in the course of him repenting. Do you understand that? He repents, and God says, all right, now you're going to go in your father's house, and you're going to, cut, you're going to pull down the bale, maybe that presumably was made out of stone, and you're going to cut down the Asherah pole, maybe made out of wood. You're going to obliterate the deities that are central to your father's life. That's what you're to do. We'd all like to think that since repentance is a good thing, that it's never going to cause a stir to those around us. That is a lie. Repentance almost, almost always affects other things and causes stirs. When we repent, it has a rippling effect and it will be messy. When we repent of laziness and abdication in leading our homes, the ripple effect will be started in our households and often it will get a little bit more messy before it gets better. If you have any experience in leadership in your home, you know that this is true. And the temptation is to start repenting in your heart and to get out on that limb a little bit and the, and the limb starts to shake it. Oh, going back. This isn't good. I'm a righteous man. I'm not going to sin trying to be righteous. I'm going to go back to my old state. I mean, re- repentance is so often messy. It just is. When we repent of sexual impurity, it often means dealing with the messiness in the others as well, doesn't it? It has implications. When we repent of sinful relationships, it often means cutting off those that are causing us to sin. The Bible does say to separate from certain people, and that's messy. That's not clean, but repentance is clean and godly. It should be nice and tidy. No. This is what we see in the story of Gideon, a man who led Israel in repentance, a man who toppled his family's household idols. Did it take guts and courage? Absolutely. Remember that in the morning, the townspeople wanted to string Gideon up because he, of what he had done. And this is a significant detail because it indicates to us not only that Gideon had knocked down his family's idols, but that, in fact, Gideon's family, though they were maybe the least, remember Gideon says, we're the least of all the tribes, why would you come to us? Well, it signifies to us that though he may be the least of all the tribes, in that tribe and in his position, his family has a place of prominence. Because who would care if Gideon knocked over his dad's idols unless all those people were seeing those idols all the time and coming to them? That's the clear message. So Gideon's family here, what God's telling him to do isn't just going to get messy with his dad. It's going to get messy with the town. And in fact, it does. They want to kill him for it. Here's the point. Repentance is not only of the mind. It will affect your actions. You cannot repent and not topple your sins. If you repent, you will topple things. You can't truly repent and not fight to change the course of your actions. You have to topple the bales of your heart, your family, your marriage, your tongue, your mind. Remember, too, that repentance is just messy often. The temple sacrifices in the Old Testament were messy, very, very messy. You'd have the blood and the guts of the animals that were being sacrificed splattering all over the white linen. And why did God want it to be white in the first place? Doesn't he know that black doesn't show as much dirt? But of course, he wanted that mess to be visible, didn't he? And as people would lay their hands on the sacrifice and confess their sins to God, it was a mess. It was a mess. Are you willing to do what it takes to repent? Are you willing to, to break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Are you willing to get rid of your phone? Are you willing to admit that you aren't the man you should be and take the actual steps necessary to topple your idols? Whatever it means. Do you have the guts and courage to topple your pride that would enable you to actually change? There's another important thing to notice in God's instructions to Gideon. The Lord wasn't only satisfied with Gideon tearing down the Baal. No, while it was necessary that he tear down those things, it was not enough. God says, and, and, and build 
an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold in an orderly manner and take the second bull, make a sacrifice with the wood of the Asherah that you cut down. Repentance is not just toppling certain things and stopping there. It is doing what's right instead. This is true in our lives. We have a lot of parents here. It's true in your kids' lives too. So often, we're dealing with something in our kids and it's, we don't like what they're doing and so we cause them to stop doing that thing. But it only manifests over here like whack-a-mole on the other side. And we let it be because we're satisfied. We're doing them a disservice. We need to stop that. We need to actually go after it. But it, I'm not just speaking about our kids. It's true for all of us. We have to do what is right. We can't just stop the bad. Jesus teaches the same thing. He says the spirit goes out of a man and it goes through waterless places seeking rest and it says, I'm going to go back to the house of from which I came. And he goes back and he founds the house is empty and so what's he do? He invites other things in because that person has not filled their life with that which is good and true and right and holy and lovely. He's just eradicated the bad. This is, this is the same truth. Jesus is just making the same point that we are seeing here. God commanded Gideon. It's not enough to stop the bad. You must do what's right. Regret may cause you to change your actions and stop doing what's wrong, but repentance leads you to do what's right. And in connection with what's doing right, I just need to say one thing. Don't make the mistake of viewing repentance as do-goodism. Don't make the tragic error of thinking that you're good with God because you've repented and you make all the right decisions. You do do what's good, And while Jesus is clear, those who love him will keep his commandments, they will be moral, they will seek to obey. Repentance isn't rooted in doing good. And that is illustrated here perfectly. Repentance is rooted in worshiping God. That's why God says, cut down the bales and offer them as a sacrifice of worship to me. Of course our actions should be in accord with what God commands, but it's not do-goodism. And there are people who, a lot of people who want to believe that being right with God is just doing good and voting the right way and working hard and having a good job and making this much income. It's not that. It's rooted in a worship of God. Real repentance turns from what is wrong and it turns to doing what is right and for the right reason, to glorify God, to worship him. Don't miss the fact that God turns the Baal and the Asherah pole into kindling for a good, true, right worship offering to him, the true God. Do you desire to see change in your family? Do you live life in 2022 and desire to see changes in, our, in your school, in the nation? Do you have desires to see things be more godly around you? Do you have a desire to accomplish great work for God? Do you have a desire, maybe your desire is that God would bring down justice on the wicked? And while we do hope that he does bring justice on the wicked, and we know he will, do you desire that truth be stood for? Do you desire that next generations of men and women go further than what you've gone? What I want to say this morning is that It starts here. All of those things start here. And you'll waste your life if you think that all those things start anywhere else but right here. If you want all this, then the best thing that you can do, the place that you must start, is your own heart, just like God said to Gideon. Gideon longed for God to do something great and miraculous. He said, when are you going to deliver us like you delivered through Moses, huh, God? My father's told me about that story. Well, God has brought him to the point where he sees actually how it really is. That that deliverance doesn't start with the waters being parted with miraculous power outside of his own ability. It starts by going and cutting down his household idol. The false gods that were being worshipped alongside the real God right under his own family's roof. God is merciful. But what he said was that what was really needed, God was merciful. I I do want to point that out. He is going to raise up Gideon. And in fact, Gideon is going to be that Moses that Gideon requested. 
But God says first that he needed to tear down his own heart's idolatries and sins. And that is where defeating the Midianites begins, right there. It's true with us. It begins in our hearts and it continues in our hearts as the central battleground. It continues in our hearts. I found this on the web. There is good and bad on the web. Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, which is what we're talking about this morning, he willed the entire life be one of repentance, the entire life. This is not something that you do today and are done with tomorrow. It is your entire life. Don't make the mistake of thinking that repentance is anything less than the entire course of life that you walk with God. Choose repentance. Repent. Don't just regret. Regret doesn't lead to anything good alone. The Christian life is not a life without sin. Notice (laughs) Gideon, when did he cut down the Asherah pole? At night, he was a coward. He said he was feared the townspeople. You know, maybe it was strategic, maybe it was cowardly, but it's in there for a reason, right? So he's even doing what God says, but in a sort of way that he's ashamed of it. But he's obeying, and that's, that's, that's a perfect picture for your life. Failing in the right direction, obeying God and sinning along the way, and because you sin along the way when you want to do what's right, you have to repent. Keep repenting. While we all sin and will, genuine faith is opposed to household idols. You can't have it both ways. And today I exhort you, I call on you to choose to live in the joy and the freedom of repentance rather than in the tyranny of regret because regret never ends if it doesn't reach repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would, you would cut us and prune us. Your word says that you discipline those that you love. And we all know that a tree that's never pruned becomes very ugly and undesirable and unfruitful. And Lord, we don't want to be like that. And so we pray that you would, you would work in us to change us. And we pray that we would be soft-hearted to you and that we would call out to you for true salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.